Hello and welcome to the eTech podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So I'm here today at Transcends Technologies with Victor Kalenian, and we're going to talk about surface acoustic wave sensors and torque measurement. The first thing, though, that I do need to say is, um, although this podcast hasn't been sponsored by Transcense. I do work with Transcense and I'm paid by them um, in an advisory capacity to uh, to help them with their business. Um, but just for today, uh, Victor's agreed to give me some of his time and we're going to gonna talk about um, him and his history and background and the kind of really interesting things that they do at Transcense with, um, with this unique uh, sensor technology. So welcome, Victor. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, no problem. I wonder if we could just start um, with with your background. So, you know, tell us where you're from. Right. Well, I've been working as a chief scientist and technologies director at Transcends Technologies for 20 years. Before that, I was a university lecturer and a researcher in the field of RF engineering, radio physics and physics of surface acoustic waves for 22 years first in Moscow, and then in Oxford. Um, I have to say that I always knew that I would become a physicist or a scientist okay. and an engineer. Yeah. Always. Starting probably from the time when I was six years old kid. And what, yes. what, what was it that kind of yes, triggered yes, that? Yes, I can remember that time very well. Very well. And the reason for that is quite simple. This is mostly the influence of my family because both of my parents were engineers okay. and my elder brother was also a scientist and an engineer. Um, besides, I probably read too much science fiction <laughs> when I was a boy. Okay. Uh, definitely, I preferred to read science fiction than go to music lessons. Right, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a few people, a few of our listeners can probably uh, relate to that, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, but I, I read a proper hard science fiction, not fantasy about dragons, uh, okay. wizards and warriors <laughs> with swords. And as a result, I became an engineer and I started my engineering career in 1978 when I got my master's degree from the university and then I became a university lecturer in 1983 after getting my PhD. And, and, and that was, you were in Russia still at that yes, point? Yes, yes. I was in Moscow. I was working and studying at one of Moscow technical universities. Right. The, the biggest question, and I probably can't answer it for myself even now, is why I decided to move from academia to industry after <laughs> okay. 22 years of my academic career yes yeah it's not an easy question perhaps i just wanted to be a bit closer to real world yeah and um, do some things that 
could be a bit more practical and more useful to people. And, and when you moved from Russia to the UK, was that still, you were still in academia at that point? Yes, yeah. yes. I Basically what happened, I got a research position at the University of Oxford. Okay. But that was quite a short uh, employment. Yeah. And But during that, I was persuaded to take part in, well, basically to try and apply for a permanent position. Yeah. At Oxford Brooks. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I got it. And as a result, I moved from Moscow to Oxford. Wow, okay. Uh, that's what happened. So after that, I worked as a senior lecturer at Oxford Brooks for several years, for six years in general. And at the same time, I was a consultant for Transcends Technologies for oh, a couple wow. of years. Okay. And at some point, they offered me uh, a position of a chief scientist. Ah, okay. Yeah. So they lured you out of uh, academia into the real world. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's what happened. Yeah. After some resistance, I accepted the position. <laughs> they wore you down. After yes. two years, they eventually convinced you. Yes, yes. So, so your, was your academic um, sort of life, was, was that focused around um, RF devices or saw, saw technologies? Was that something you were deep into? Um, well, not quite, mm. because I... Mm, for one year, from 1986 to 1987, I worked at the University of Oxford mm. with um, Professor Laszlo Solima, and uh, we did some research on photorefractive materials in application to optical signal processing, uh, phase front conjugation, things like that. Okay. So that I continued doing this research when I went back to Moscow, and then when I came to Oxford as well. Okay. So uh, we published a number of papers on this subject, on physics of photorefractive materials. But at the same time, somehow Transcends people learned that I was working on saw devices in the past. Right. I did my PhD on surface acoustic wave physics and uh, design of the devices. So they asked me to do some design for them, and that's what I did. That's how I became consultant. Ah, okay. sense. Yeah, yeah. Gradually, I uh, moved from the field of optical signal processing back to surface acoustic wave devices. Yeah, and I also did some work on um, just design of RF circuits back in Moscow. So I, it was quite natural to me to move to so sensing because it's very close linkage there with the rf side and yes yeah. absolutely and maybe, maybe probably a good segue into um you know what what is it that transcends do so as a as a company what what are you uh, yes. engaged with well transcends was quite an attractive uh, place to work actually because for me uh, it wasn't much different from the university research group because it was a small company with a very special creative and inspiring atmosphere which is quite characteristic for uh, research and development yeah. enterprises. So nice being sort of working right in yes. amongst the technology, not too kind of abstract. Yes, yeah. yes, that's, that's right. Uh, the company itself was founded in 1991 by two uh, engineers, entrepreneurs, okay. and one financial journalist. 
Okay. <laughs> and the company became especially active in 1999 when it went public. Right, yeah. Yeah, so Transcends is a... Is a is a PLC. Yes, uh, it's so a PLC. You, uh, for anyone interested, I'll put some links in the show notes for you to sort of check out. Um, you know where you can find out more about it. But it it, it is a publicly uh, traded company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the main idea of the company was to develop IP in the field of um, surface acoustic wave sensors for automotive industry, in particular for electrical power assisted steering, EPAS, and Tire pressure monitoring system, TPMS. Okay. Right. Well, the question one can immediately ask is why surface acoustic wave yeah. sensors? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is special about surface acoustic waves? Yeah. Well, actually, intensive development of Actually, surf- uh, there's a first of a question of what is a surface acoustic wave? <laughs> yes, yes. I'll yeah. try to answer it in yeah. one sentence. <laughs> okay. Um, the intensive development of surface acoustic wave devices began in early 1970s after invention of a so-called interdigital transducer. It's a thin film microelectronic device that could convert electrical radio frequency signals into surface acoustic waves in a very, very efficient way. What is the surface acoustic wave? It basically looks like a sea wave, but it propagates not on the surface of a sea, but on the surface of a polished solid body. Ah, okay, yeah. So, so you, we've got these the interdigital transducer, which is like um, two combs, basically, yes. or you inter like Inter-di- digits, inter-di- like your fingers. Yes, yeah, yes. and we're creating a, a wave, which yeah, on on this on that. Okay, yes, due to the piezoelectric effect of ah. the substrate, because the solid body, which is used in saw devices, is usually a piezoelectric crystal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so that this wave uh, runs along the surface of this crystal, and at this point we should bear in mind that the velocity of acoustic wave in general, and surface acoustic wave as well, is five orders of magnitude smaller than the velocity of light. Okay, yeah. As a result, the wavelength is of a micron size. Right. And as a result, the uh, dimensions of so devices are quite small. Yes, yeah. Within one millimeter structure or two millimeter structure, uh, you can achieve a very nice, very unique frequency response. Yeah. Uh, and you will never be able to achieve a similar frequency response using traditional electronic components like capacitors and inductors. Yeah. So um, this miniature, very stable and inexpensive devices quickly became a dominating technology mm. in inter, uh, intermediate frequency filters okay delay lines okay and resonators okay and you could find them uh, in every tv set in uh, every transceiver okay yeah and in every radar yeah that's what started in uh, the 70s Ah, okay. And later, in the 90s, surface acoustic wave technology became a dominating technology for RF, radio frequency, front-end filters and duplexes for mobile phones and yeah. base stations. Yeah, yeah. Ah, and it's, so, so using it as a 
sort of electronic component like that as a filter device that it, it's essentially the same technology as you've got in your sensor devices exactly ah. yes it's exactly but it has become obvious in back in 70s that the resonators based on surface acoustic waves and delay lines can also be used as temperature and strain sensors it was known for quite a long time possibly because by accident of Noticing they're not quite doing the job you expect when they're under different physical conditions. Yes, yes. <laughs> quite often this sensitivity to temperature and strain was regarded as a parasitic effect yeah. <laughs> that people tried to avoid. Yeah. But also uh, quite a number of researchers uh, did investigate the possibility of using them for, feel, for, for sensing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this is why, why can they be used as sensors? Just simply because... Uh, the physical dimensions of the saw substrate as well as the saw velocity happens to depend both on temperature and on strain. Uh, however, saw strain and temperature sensors didn't find any noticeable applications in the real world till the middle of the 90s. Why do you think that was? Well, I think, and uh, I'm sure I'm right, it was very difficult for them to compete with uh, significantly less expensive traditional temperature and strain sensors. Okay. Um, in their wired form, when a surface acoustic wave sensing element is hardwired to the active electronic circuitry that is necessary for the sensor, the advantages of using saw devices as sensors uh, due to their uh, high stability or better resolution often just don't overweigh their increased cost. Right, okay. That's that's the situation with wired source sensors. And is that because you've got the so you've got this sort of I guess fairly inexpensive interdigital sensing unit, but then to make that work you've got quite a bit of electronics sitting behind yes, it. exactly. You need yeah. to make it a part of an oscillator, for instance. Yeah. You need to include this device, being it a delay line or a resonator, into a feedback loop of the oscillator. And then you also need to measure the frequency of this oscillator. Yeah, yeah. And so that there is quite a bit of electronics which is involved uh, in the source sensor, even if it's just a wired device. And I can imagine back in the day, actually doing that kind of thing at the right frequency was pretty difficult, you know. Yes, it wasn't, it wasn't straightforward. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Whereas um, sort of m more modern microprocessors and signal processing technology probably has made that much, yes. much more straightforward. You're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, only by the middle of 90s. Uh, the progress in CMOS RF circuits, mm. integrated circuits, I mean, yeah. and in microcontrollers and in uh, digital signal processes allowed to reduce the cost of intelligent transceivers to the level that sort of uh, renewed the interest in uh, surface acoustic wave strain and temperature sensors. Yeah. Why did it happen? Well, first of all, uh, everything went wireless in the 90s. Yeah. 
wireless uh, phones, yeah. wireless keyboards or mice for <laughs> computers, yeah. even wireless toothbrushes. Yeah, absolutely yeah. everything went wireless. So uh, temperature and strain sensors also tried to become wireless. Yeah, but yes, you can connect a simple a telemetry transmitter. Mm. to a traditional temperature or strain sensing element like strain gauge. Yeah. But in this case, um, you will have to provide a DC power source yes. for that transmitter. And that's, so, so it's sort of important, uh, I guess, point that the the, com or the common method of uh, providing a wireless torque sensor on a shaft involves putting quite a lot of electronics on the shaft yes. with with normally some sort of battery power or inductive coupling to transmit power yes. on the shaft. Or energy harvester. Yeah, and you, you've got then electronics on the shaft that are transmitting a signal off the shaft in, in the same way that a, a phone would transmit a signal. But the, the, the sort of differentiator with the SOAR technology is actually all the things that are on the shaft are passive, like yes, and absolutely. The, the electronics sit off the shaft. Yes, exactly. Um, if you if you use a strain gauge connected to the telemetry transmitter, mm. then the whole device will probably weigh tens of grams, or not even, or maybe yeah, yeah. hundreds of grams, while the saw device itself uh, weighs only milligrams. Yeah, and uh, besides, it's totally passive device. It doesn't require any DC source for its operation. Yeah. And it's very well suited for wireless interrogation. Yeah. Especially if it works within the frequency range from 400 megahertz up to 5 gigahertz. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. One of the, one of the ch challenges with a traditional, and I know this from the past, from my experience of trying to make strain gauges work on uh, electric motors and things, they don't really like background noise because of because of how a conventional strain gauge works how does a how does a source sensor react to background noise you know I'm, I'm kind of thinking is it a challenge with a source sensor with background well to to much less extent than for the strain gauge because right. the strain uh, when you use a strain gauge you rely on measuring its resistance yeah basically because uh uh and in this case, you need to perform amplitude measurement. Yeah. And obviously, any noise at any frequency range will contribute to the uh, random errors. Yeah. Uh, of the measured in the measured strain, uh, the saw device is a bit different from that. Um, how do we interrogate uh, passive saw devices wirelessly? Let's consider. Uh, a sensing element that is based on a saw resonator. We actually prefer to use saw resonators rather than delay lines because they have low insertion loss at radio frequencies and higher Q factor. So, okay, so uh, you lost me now. What's, what do you mean by uh, insertion loss? Insertion What's that? loss. Yeah. Well, um, you can uh, apply an RF signal to excite the saw device and then you can measure the response of the saw device. Mm -hmm. So you, then you divide the amplitude of the saw response by the amplitude of the excitation signal. And that ratio is obviously less than unity. Yeah. And okay. it characterizes the insertion loss. Uh, okay. Usually it's expressed in decibels. Okay. 
So does that mean you basically don't need a lot of power because you're getting quite a good signal back? Compared to the delay lines, that's true. Resonators uh. have low insertion loss, mm. and at the same time, they have higher quality factor. Yeah. Q factor. Okay. And it turns out that the Q factor determines um, the uh, potentially achievable resolution in case of wireless interrogation. Okay. So the higher the Q factor, the better the resolution of the sensing system. And what what is what is the so quality factor? What does that actually? What does it mean well, in practical? Um, the quality factor determines the length of the so of the response of the device after its excitation by a very very short pulse. Mm. We call it delta function yeah. or Dirac's function. Okay. So that how long the response is after you kick the device and yeah. excite it. Right, okay. The longer the response, the better the resolution. Okay, you know, I guess the easier it is to measure and, and things like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so to measure the saw resonant frequency in a remote way, we use an ele uh, electronic interrogation device that we call a reader, and this device sends periodically a very short RF interrogation pulse. This pulse is picked up by the sensor antenna, a simple antenna connected to the passive sensing element with the resonator. It excites the resonator, and the resonator starts ringing. And this ringing continues even after the end of the interrogation pulse, for a long time, which is determined by the Q factor. Ah, okay. And then this uh, electric oscillation is being retransmitted by the same sensor antenna yeah. back to the reader antenna. Right. The reader's receiver picks up this signal and analyzes it, finds the frequency of the ringing, which is the same as the resonant frequency, and then it calculates torque, temperature, strain. That's how it works. Um, so the difference from the uh, strain gauge is that we measure the frequency rather than measuring amplitude. Ah, okay. So you're less, it, basically background noise doesn't matter. Well, it, at least it, it still matters, but yeah. to a lesser extent than for purely amplitude measurements. Okay. Easier to filter out, yeah. What, what about things like um, electromagnetic fields? Well, it's a good question. Um, if, well, obviously, the reader's um, receiver has certain front-end circuits, front-end filter, that limits the bandwidth, so that if there is a signal, interfering signal, outside this bandwidth, yeah. then it's suppressed by the front-end filter and sub subsequent circuitry of the receiver. But if the interference happens to be within the working, operating frequency range yeah. of the sensor, then we are in trouble. Okay, yeah. So the only way how to sort of mitigate this is to perform the measurement of the noise before launching the interrogation pulse. Uh, okay. And so then listen, wait until... Kick, exactly, listen again. Listen b before interrogate. Yeah. And I guess strategy. you can do those... That cycle... You can do that cycle many, many times a second. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well... Um, I just another question just popped in my head. Sorry to could just in, okay, hit your flow, but what about? I guess like a if if you held like a regular magnet, you know, sort of magnetic field, 
because it's the the, the the actual sensor element the interdigital sensor that's you know there's no ferrous materials in that or anything it, it's not going to see that magnetic field will, will it that shouldn't affect no, it at it's all. not it's not sensitive to magnetic fields mm. at all yeah unlike um magnetostrictive senses right okay yeah yeah it's much well it's not much less. it's totally insensitive to stray magnetic fields and for that reason one of the advantages of uh source sensors is that they can be used quite safely near powerful electric motors yeah. uh power electronic circuitry things like that yeah yeah because it's, it's always a a challenge um in a design of a motor and electronic system because you do have strong magnetic fields i mean all over the place in the in the cabling in the motor itself in in the inverter unit yeah. and you're i mean quite often you're measuring those magnetic fields to to get uh, estimate or calculate the performance of the machine but um or the system but um yeah you, you the components you're using have to be able to withstand exposure to those fields which can, can be quite a challenge for some uh, with some sensors yes that's right yeah the reader is not a simple electronic device. Back in the 80s, it would probably occupy the size of a good desk drawer. A desk uh, drawer? Desk drawer. And it, it would cost something like several, well, maybe even tens of thousands of pounds. <laughs> okay, right. Well, it's basically a radar. It's a, or a very specialized uh, spectrum analyzer. Wow. So okay. it's it's not uh, it's, it's nothing most, trivial. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. no. But uh, due to the advances mm. in the um, microelectronics, yeah, uh, the situation is absolutely different now. Yeah. Um, at Transense, we have developed an application-specific radio frequency integrated circuit, RF ASIC. Right. Uh, that together with the off-the-shelf digital signal processor does all the work of the reader. Okay. And the reader now can fit uh, within a matchbox. Okay. And its cost is quite acceptable for uh, high-volume automotive applications. Wow. So that, I mean, it's quite... Obviously, ele electronics uh, development, it's driven so many things but it's quite a quite a sort of graphic illustration that you've gone from something that was physically the size of a, a desk drawer so maybe 50 centimeters by 30 by yes 15 or something and and that basically doing exactly the same job but through the application in an in an asic has been able to be shrunk down with a few other components to something uh, the size of a matchbox uh, it is um that's quite phenomenal, really. Did it take a long time to develop that? Um, several years. Okay. Several years. And and I guess, so So your background at that point and mixed experience with the RF electronics and with the ASICs must have come in really, uh, been very, very valuable to that development. Yes. Um, what happened? We, uh, first of all, we did quite an extensive simulation at a system level of the entire reader. After that, we uh, designed and built a prototype on the discrete components of the shelf components. And only after that, we could uh, specify every single component of this reader 
and then do the development together with a company specializing in automotive electronic integrated circuits. And now they are producing this RF ASIC cheap for us and our uh, licensees. Okay. And uh, uh, it's quite interesting. I, to be honest, I hadn't realized, um, I probably should have, but <laughs> the, the fact that you start from the start, it's, it's always been about um, going into the automotive sector. So, you know, the, the, because the requirements for automotive are quite demanding in terms of reliability and robustness and, and things like that. So, you know, because you started there, actually it probably made life a bit more difficult initially to make something that was going to do do what it needed to do. But now you've got something which is very um, a, a robust little uh, product set. Yes, yes, I, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> yeah. As, and, and you mentioned about um, making in volumes because actually one of, one of the, sort of really interesting interesting things about Transcense is you you have commercialized already in in some applications so yes that's 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 right um uh i i will mention these applications a bit later okay i just want to say now that we can now do the wireless measurement of the resonant frequencies uh of the saw resonator uh, with the resolution better than 400 hertz at the frequencies above 400 megahertz. And um, we can do this measurement uh, within 150 microseconds. So this is not bad at all. But uh, being, be being able to measure this resonant frequency accurately, unfortunately, is not enough to measure strain and temperature. And the point is that the frequency of the saw resonator depends both on torque, both on strain and temperature. Right, okay. But what we want is to be able to measure independently strain and temperature. Uh, so how, how do you sort of separate the two out? Um, we have developed uh, the method of that allows us to do the temperature compensated strain measurement and independent tem uh, temperature measurement by using several different saw resonators within one single sensing element. Ah, okay, right. And uh, we also developed calibration methods for the sensing element. Right. And this is a part of the uh, intellectual property portfolio of our company. So you're able to look, presumably you look at the temperature and then you're able to sort of take that value out of the, the combined measurement to compensate back over for that. That's, that's pre yes, that's right. That's okay. the, the basic, basically this is correct. Okay. <laughs> uh, although the, <laughs> since we use resonators with a different design, yeah. they are affected by temperature and strain differently. Yeah, yeah, and this allows us to resolve both physical quantities independently. Ah, and that's why, because when you look at um, the saw element, you know, you, initially the, we described this interdigital sensor, but when you look at the sensor, that's not what you see. You kind of see this kind of quite. It looks like a when you when you blow it up. Um, someone someone said to me it looked like a, a video character, but it it's sort of a scattering of um, 
of, of elements inside the sensor. There's there's quite a lot going on in there, and and that's these multiple different um, saw yes. units. Well, obviously we can't compare <laughs> complexity of our sensing elements with modern um, processes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number yeah, of yeah. elements is smaller. Yeah. I'm, we are talking about hundreds of uh, elements. Yeah. Uh, which you can find in the layout of our sensing elements. Yeah, yeah. Still not trivial design. Yeah, and they're all, it's pa it's it's still totally it's just pa it's passive. We're yes. we're creating those elements actually with a similar production method as you would make a, an ASIC or a semiconductor device, but you you you're effectively fabricating those elements at a micro scale um, in very very thin materials. Uh, in, in, in that sort of fab type process. Yes, uh, the uh, sizes of the elements uh, are about one micron. Wow. And um, the number of elements, as I said, hundreds of um, various stripes, mm. rectangles made of thin aluminum film. Yeah. Uh, and the thickness of this film should be very, very carefully controlled because we need to achieve good tolerances yeah rather tight tolerances on the resonant frequencies yeah yeah okay yeah got it interesting um that's the sensing element another part of the uh, intellectual property portfolio of transcense is um the patents that allow us to uh, design um sensor antennas and reader antennas that can be used on the shafts with diameters varying from 20 millimeters up to 420 millimeters. That's a big shaft. <laughs> yes, it's a big shaft. <laughs> yeah. So, so covering, I know you mentioned initially the steering um, device, and, and, and you probably talk about that later, but for a 400 mil shaft could be a, a very large propulsion system, you know, a ship or something. Uh, yes. Uh, well, Yes, it can be, for instance, the output shaft of an industrial, big industrial gearbox. Yeah, yeah. One, well, one of the examples is the gearbox used on big wind turbines. Ah, okay, yeah. And these, these antennas are quite, I mean, they're sort of quite clever, but in that they're quite simple. They are pretty simple and not expensive at all. Yeah. They are based on, well, there are different designs mm. that we uh, used in the past. Uh, but many of them are made of a standard printed circuit board material. Yeah. So-called FR4 or FR5. Yeah. And you simply have an antenna on the rotating part and then another antenna for fairly close to it held static. For torque applications, we do use antennas that, what we call near-field antennas, okay. that are positioned relatively close to each other. Um, the gap between the rotor part and the stator part is probably, well, between one millimeter and 20 millimeters. Okay. So quite, it doesn't have to be like a, a half mil gap. And it, I guess it doesn't really matter if that gap moves particularly? Uh, well, to some extent, well, definitely it's much less sensitive to movement yeah. than the pickup coils of um, magnetostrictive sensors. Right, okay. Uh, we still need to make sure that the reader antenna doesn't get too close to the sensor antenna. Right, yeah. 
because in this case uh, we will face quite noticeable rotational errors. The measured frequency will start depending on the rotation angle, okay. which is an undesirable thing. Yeah. Ah, so so it actually pays. So you we want them further apart, yes. not too close together. Uh, yes, but to a certain extent, okay. because since it's a near field antenna, yeah. if you move it too far away, uh, the signal strength will be too, sm okay. too, too small. It loses signal, so that yeah. there is a certain range okay. within, uh, for, for the sort of axial movement of those antennas. Uh, that, that, that's really interesting because a lot of times you think of, you know, when, when you're designing a system with a rotating shaft, you want to allow for movement on the shaft and, you know, vibration and things like that. But it, it sounds like that, that shouldn't really be a problem here. At well, all. it's much less of a problem for source sensors because, as I said before, we rely not amplitude me on amplitude measurements, but on frequency measurements. And the fact that the signal becomes weaker doesn't well doesn't matter to the, to that extent. Well, clearly, when the signal is too weak, uh, the random errors in the measured frequency will increase, but it doesn't affect the measured value itself. See that? So so it's all like always self compensating. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, since our sensing element is well suited for strain measurement. We can also measure any physical quantity that can be converted into strain in the saw substrate. And that's where you come into torques. That's right. Mm. But we also design, well, how, we, how do we convert the physical quantity into strain? Well, it depends on the physical quantity we measure. Yeah. For instance, to measure pressure, we developed a special metal can, metal package, that... Um, deforms the source sensing element depending on the pressure applied. Yeah, yeah. Th this way we designed a pressure and temperature sensor for tire pressure monitoring system. And we also developed uh, what we call an all quartz package for the torque and temperature sensing element, which is particularly well suited for measuring shear strain that is generated on the surface of the shaft when the torque is applied. To rewind slightly there, so the, the, so the pressure sensor actually is kind of like a, using a mechanical element to put a, a load onto the source sensor cre to create the strain. Yes. So a little diaphragm or something? Or? Absolutely. Right. That's right. We have a diaphragm which presses upon the saw device, deforms it. Mm. and changes the frequency of one of the resonators. Yeah. There are in total three resonators inside. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is not one possible approach. Other approaches can also be used. For instance, to achieve a good high pressure sensitivity, we could have etched the thin diaphragm mm. in the source substrate. Ah, yeah. Okay. But... At the time when we did all this development, etching a diaphragm in quartz was not a standard no. iteration. <laughs> so to keep the cost of the source sensing element low enough and acceptable for automotive applications, we uh, decided to use mechanical uh, transducer that converts pressure into deformation of the source sensing element. And, and I guess... So I'm th just thinking about that. The, probably the the advantage of doing that is in most pressure sensors you would have a diaphragm again, but 
typically, you know, um, to, to be sort of guaranteed that it's completely hermetic is is quite difficult. And if the diaphragm ever breaks in service, you might have a leak and sort of issues can come from that. But with the saw device, you have the you can have the full saw unit on one side in the pressure area and then all of the electronics and the reading stuff outside in the non-pressure area. And if the diaphragm fails or there's an issue, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's never ever any possibility of, of a leakage or a sort of failure from that unit. Um, well, I wouldn't say so. Okay, right, okay. <laughs> well, the point is that the saw device in our TPMS sensor is in, enclosed inside the her fully hermetic metal package yeah okay yeah so the hermeticity of that metal package is still important yeah because we measure actually the difference between the outside pressure uh, and okay. the pressure which of the air in, inside that cavity right okay. so that the hermeticity is still important yeah. but providing hermetic seal is not that difficult because we just laser weld the diaphragm to the metal base right okay holding the saw device so that it's all hermetically sealed yeah in sound. a very nice way <laughs> okay <laughs> and 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 as a tire pressure sensor what what benefit does that bring well the main benefit is that it's a batteryless sensor it doesn't require a battery but the current currently dominating technology in tpms is battery powered telemetry transmitters so uh and it's it's it does dominate everything, and um, at the moment it's not feasible to sort of commercialize TPMS sensor for passenger cars. For some time, one of our licenses manufactured this kind of sensor, sensing systems uh, for motorsport. I guess on a passenger car, with with a, the the batteries lasts you know, as as long as the tire lasts sort of thing. So people, yes. there's an opportunity to replace the batteries yes. when tires are changed and things. So yeah. the durability life cycles, yes. not all that critical. Yes, that's right. For motorsport, it's critical to have as small weight uh, of, the, of the sensor as possible. Yeah. And also uh, our sensor allows to read the pressure every millisecond. Or every 10 milliseconds, to be more exact. Yeah. While the passenger car TPMS sensor transmits the, the pressure information and temperature information once, I don't know, ten, every 10 seconds. So you get very high, um, very, very high frequency rate. measurement, a yeah. lot of data. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in some applications, I can imagine that would be re really important and having that extra sort of level of, of data and, uh, and durability would would be um would be an advantage but yes but not not so much in the passenger car field no no, no. okay interesting yeah well that's the current situation with tpms but transense as a company is more focused now on torque measurement torque yeah. and temperature measurement yeah and um well w originally we developed this sensing element for uh, electrical power assisted steering system yeah. for epas Moving on then to uh, to torque sensing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as I said, uh, the torque sensing element was originally developed for EPAS for electrical power assisted system, but obviously 
uh, we can measure torque applied not only to steering shafts but also to any other shafts starting from relatively small input gearbox shafts for sports cars to quite big shafts uh, of gearbo- industrial gearboxes or wind turbines or marine prop shafts yeah yeah it's uh it, it, it's interesting because you know talk quite often in a development environment we spend a lot of time and effort very accurately or you know as, as accurate as we think we can do measuring talk to validate a product and and sort of validate a design for a system but th- there aren't many applications where we're able to embed a, a torque sensor in into the product when it's gone into production uh, using traditional technology like it, it's it's quite difficult to do and, and not not all that common but it it seems like the uh, the transcense technology allows you to do that potentially yes from the very beginning from uh, the, the point when Transcense was founded as a company, uh, the aim was to develop something, some torque sensor, that could be used in high-volume applications mm. uh, in production units, rather than just for testing purposes. Yeah. And uh, I guess power steering, the EPAS unit, is, is one example where, you know, today th- there's a few different ways of doing it, but but measuring the torque is is necessary so so that is a an active uh, an active field of development the, the one thing that always that well it sticks out on the e-pass obviously it's it's very safety critical so you know you you want that steering system to be completely robust reliable it, it was was that a challenge um, um yes definitely it is a challenge uh currently uh, the torque sensor which is used for EPAS is often based on the so-called torsion bar right. that uh, makes the shaft torsionally compliant okay. to increase the twist angle Yeah, because traditional sensors based on Hall effects yeah. Hall effect uh, or based on optical measurements, yeah. Yeah. they measure the twist angle. Okay. And in order to make this device safe, the quite a tricky mechanical design of the shaft is used. Well, and and, and actually, even sometimes, so that that twist is something that you, you you need enough twist that you can measure, but not so much that the driver can feel it or or, or it introduces any kind of vagueness into the steering system. Yes, which is very challenging. Yes, it is. Um, what advantage does the torque sensor give us? Uh, the torque sensor based on soil resonators uh, happens to have the resolution, strain resolution, an order of magnitude higher than the typical strain resolution of a traditional uh, thin film strain gauge. Okay. Uh, as a result, we can build a torque sensor for EPAS mm. on a stiff shaft. Ah, uh, okay, right. So our torque sensor for EPAS is non-compliant at all, okay. which is an advantage for certain uh, types of uh, vehicles. For instance, of the road vehicles. Where they're seeing very high impact loads on the steering. Yeah, I think heavy-duty commercial vehicles as well. 
Yeah, that kind of application, yeah. Oh, really? That's interesting, yeah. Yes, yeah. and the fact that uh, we can measure pretty small values of strain uh, helps us to achieve sufficient uh, safety factor for the steering shafts. And obviously the shaft design itself is quite simple. Um, so th that's one advantage. Obviously another advantage is that it's a battery-less sensor, um, doesn't require any active electronics on the shaft, so that there is no need for um, changing the batteries or providing expensive uh, devices um, for power transfer to the shaft. It doesn't require any rebalancing after instrumentation. Since the saw device is very, very light, it can work at speeds, at rotation speeds up to and above 20,000 RPM. Okay. One of our licensees uses saw sensors or torque sensors on the shafts of avionic tur turbine engines uh, where the rotation speed is pretty high. And the sensor that we developed can work within the temperature range from minus 40 to plus 150 degrees centigrade and provides the accuracy better than 1% within the whole range. So it, it, not only are you get able to get a very high sampling frequency out of it so you can get a lot of data resolution which f f steering or propulsion i would think would be essential um but you're also able to do it very accurately as well so you know that 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 number that you're getting is is a solid number you can you can yes. really rely on that uh, so from a system control point of view that's that's going to be critical yes yes that's right well, as we discussed before, it's totally insensitive to magnetic fields. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, you mentioned the high update rate. Yes, it is. Uh, our standard reader provides the update rate of 6.7 kilohertz, <laughs> okay. which, which is sufficient for most of uh, industrial and automotive applications. Yeah, and it, <laughs> just about sufficient, yeah. Yes, yeah. well, it yeah. allows us to monitor... Um, quite fast uh, torsional vibrations as well. Yeah, well, and, and you know, one of the the challenges that you, I've I've certainly seen in the past designing uh, control systems in, in vehicles is actually you, you end up having to do so much um, signal processing, filtering to take out noise that you really can You you actually there's a fine balance between. Um, seeing noise in the system and getting false readings and getting valid useful data out and you know you, you end up at quite a slow um, measurement rate because of that so you you, you know you, you have to be quite careful but you, you're not going to hit that problem with the with the saw device you're just able to get such a, a, a quality stream of data coming out that you you really could uh, you know, you could actively use, you could use that in an active control loop, for example. Which that's right. Well, mm. basically, the the, uh, the EPAS sensors are, are used in in the feedback control loop, indeed. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and also they can be used for condition monitoring yeah. of various systems. Yeah, uh, and they provide lots of information. It's a big question how how to in extract. Um, the most informative um, parameters of, of from the torque signal, because yeah. obviously we can't keep transmitting this uh, stream of uh, torque values mm. 
So that, but that's that's more about uh, the condition monitoring algorithms. We can provide enough information for condition monitoring. Uh, yeah, systems. Should, because you'd be able to to detect. Um well quite a lot of things going on in there so like premature bearing failures or um because you'd both you'd have a vibration signature off that but you'd also potentially have um you know things going on with with system torque uh because of the extra friction that you could detect as well yes yeah uh, okay um although transcends is mainly involved in torque measurements our wireless source strain sensing elements can also be used for non-contact measurement of axial load okay and bending mm -hmm. and bending vibrations if needed yeah so um that's the situation what, what do you think about um so my, my my particular area of interest is is around electric motors and um you know i, I i've looked at this um i think wow well, you know really in the past getting like a temperature reading off the off the rotor of a of a of a motor would have been quite helpful you know, it's quite it's quite difficult to get into the rotor normally mm -hmm. do you think it would be possible to use a saw sensor um, to get a, a rotor temperature reading definitely um, as i mentioned before uh, the temperature reading comes as a byproduct of the temperature independent measurement of torque yeah so that uh, our reader provides information about the torque and temperature okay. within one packet. And if we had a a motor, you know, if you think of it like the normally you have the the rotor on a shaft, could the sensor be quite close to the rotor, or do you, does it you have to space it away to get a good torque measurement? Well, the only limitation is that the position of the sensor should be in the place where the strain does represent applied torque. So that's the only limitation. How close we can position the sensor to winding doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it can be as close as, as, uh, as, as the mechanical design allows. But uh, we need to place the sensor uh, where the strain is linearly depends on the applied torque. Okay. Or proportional to torque. You'd have to examine the shaft and make sure you correctly placed it. But uh, as long as it was on the shaft um, and, and, and that all agreed, then so you could you could definitely measure temperature on the shaft at, at the very least, which yes. would give you a good indication of, of the rotor temperature. Yes. Um, it, it, it's from a torque um, measurement point of view. You, you you're doing that with a always with differential strain so do you always have to sort of look at what's happening strain wise on either side of the shaft or not always okay um, usually we install two sensing elements on two opposite sides of the shaft the main reason for doing this is to cancel the influence of potential bending moments that can be applied to the shaft together with torque if we don't want those bending moments to sort of distort the value of strain, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then we need to cancel this influence by averaging the readings coming from the two sensing elements. Uh, okay, so, so that's the only reason you have two. Another potential reason could be uh, some sort of degree of redundancy. Right, yeah, okay. Because actually, I mean... Uh, 
shaft sag in an electric motor is a known phenomenon. And I guess that it would be that kind of thing that you you know bending strain would be those sorts of uh, of, yeah. of loads on the shaft. Okay. Yes. That's in, and one one other thing. So in in a, in the motor system, we always have um, a, a speed and position sensor because we to control the motor, we need to know where it is so we know when to fire the phases to 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 make it go. And um, is it possible with the RF coupler to do something along the lines of of um, sort of speed position measurement in there as well? Yes, it is possible, and it's actually being done for the EPAS sensor. The coupler um, that is used in that system is made on a standard PCB material, as I mentioned before. And uh, the same rotor couple can also um, have a copper target. Okay, yeah. Which is uh, working together with the coils positioned on the stator RF couple. Yeah, yeah. So this arrangement allows us to add a inductive uh, absolute posi- angular position sensor into the torque sensor, so torque sensor, so that two devices will work together quite quite happily yeah so potentially because the, the normal is uh, some sort of hall effect or uh, optical i guess like like in the, the epas system so a hall effect um rotary encoder is quite a common thing or, or optical less less common so we potentially could replace that um that rotary encoder with with, with the induct inductive uh, angular position sensor right okay and the accuracy will be well around one degree Another, just again, sort of wondering, when an electric motor, when the phases, you know, you, you, you're firing the phases on the motor at quite high frequency, you've got a three-phase motor, you sort of shove, 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not, not quite like that, but yeah. it's, it's, it's an impulse uh, yes. reaction. W- would you be would you be able to sample the, the, the torque to the extent where, let's say, a phase was off or a phase was not quite right? Do you think you'd be able to measure um, that kind of torque imbalance in the system? Or Well, the only thing I can say is that when we developed a torque sensor for um, kinetic energy recovery system for Formula One... Oh, okay. That's an interesting uh, example. Uh, <laughs> the torque sensor was installed on a short shaft yeah. connecting the electric motor to the crankshaft of the... Uh, IC engine. Yeah, yeah. And we were told by uh, our customer what sort of maximum torque we can expect in this system. Mm. After the first testing, it was absolutely obvious that that torque was at least doubled. Right. Because of a very, very short, sharp pulses, torque pulses that our sensor measured. Right. And we decided that these pulses actually come from the electric motor. Uh, okay because there is no other way uh, how they, they they were not firing pulses of the ic engine yeah so it, it, we'd be able we'd, ha- we'd have a data stream where we could actually sort of basically verify down to a, a phase firing level potentially that the motor was working properly 
I hope, but it all depends on the uh, frequency of those pulses. Yeah, yeah. If it's in the right kind of uh, domain, I guess. I guess. I mean, you got some quite high-speed motors uh, being used. That you know, twenty, twenty, twenty-five thousand RPM machines. So you can imagine, depending on the pole pair combination, you'd be uh, sort of firing those fairly quickly. But um, yes. Well, in many cases, I think we should be able to resolve pulses. Uh, we also we can also resolve uh, individual firing pulses of internal combustion engines. <laughs> okay, right. Yes. So if, I, I think uh, I just noticed we, we're kind of running out of time quite rapidly. So just to start to to wrap up, then it's it's been really interesting. And actually, you know, I, I mentioned at the start I do um, do some work with Transense, but you know. I haven't, we've not really had an opportunity to properly sit down and, and talk about what the sensor can do um, or can't do. So it's been absolutely fascinating. You know, thank you for your, uh, for your time and, and for explaining it so wonderfully. It really, it's helped me and, and I'm sure helped the listeners understand a bit more about SOAR uh, sensor technology and, and what you can do and what you can't do with it. Just to, to sort of close up, uh, a question I, I basically always ask people is, you know, l- looking at, at the business and, and the market and, and your technology, what do you think, you know, what do you think the trends are going to be over the next few years? And, and what are you kind of excited about? What's coming that's got you excited? Uh, well, I very much hope that we'll come to the point when we can say, yes, our sensor has found applications uh, in the products pre- which are being produced in, in not in hundreds, but in uh, at least tens of thousands units per year, if not millions units per year. That would really excite me. Just the scale of um, application, um, that would be really great to come to that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it must feel, does it feel like we're kind of getting there in, in, in after this long journey? Well, I hope we are pretty close to it. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you, Ryan, for for the nice opportunity. We'll close there for the day. Um, So thank you uh, very much for taking the time out to to listen to the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, We've got loads of more exciting episodes coming on electric vehicle and autonomous uh, vehicle technology, uh, powertrain components and systems. So a number of episodes uh, ready. Back, back to the usual format. Uh, so don't forget, you know, if, if you're working in a really exciting field in electric and autonomous vehicles and you want to talk about what you're doing, um, you can get in touch with me. You can find out how to do that down in the show notes. Um, this is one of the first episodes that we've recorded under the new uh, new brand. So you'll notice that as well. Um, it's really exciting to be uh, to be kind of relaunching under the new brand. So uh, it's fantastic. So if you can make sure, you know, if you've enjoyed this, uh, hit like or hit subscribe, depending on the platform you're on and, and leave us a rating. It really helps to uh, to get the show in front of some more people um, as we uh, as we build that audience and help to share this, uh, the knowledge and experience from uh, from the people that I'm talking to. So thanks again and I really look forward to speaking to you again soon